Uh, well, welcome. Uh, we are in a series from the book of Acts, and uh, Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. It's the first book after the four Gospels. Uh, and uh, in our church, uh, we uh, regularly, not always, but regularly, we preach uh, through books of the Bible. And uh, there's a lot of reasons we do that, but one of the reasons that we do that is because it very much teaches us uh, how we can read the Bible on our own. Uh, if you go from Sunday at uh, about 6.20 uh, to the next Sunday at about 5 o'clock, uh, without exposing yourself to God's Word, you might be a very hungry person. Uh, and our hope is that um, you would uh, be having meals in between. Uh, and you might say, well, what do I do? Well, a, a really bad approach would be what I call uh, shotgunning it. And shotgunning it is just taking your Bible and saying, Chee! and you read whatever you turn to. Really tough to do that. Uh, I would suggest, especially if this is new to you, uh, to start with one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Start chapter 1, verse 1. Read, uh, read just the first chunk. And just say, God, what would you have for me here? And maybe nothing uh, of real note comes, uh, comes to bear. That's okay. You got tomorrow. Tomorrow is coming. And you can read the second chunk. Uh, and you say, Lord, what would you have for me here? And uh, that is what we do here uh, in the book of Acts. And you can do it too. You can do it all on your own. Um, I'm nothing but the waiter. Uh, I, the chef, uh, the Lord Jesus, uh, has cooked up a meal. And he's just given it to me to feed to you. And you can go to the cook, too. You don't need me. Um, so uh, let me uh, pray, and we'll get started here. Father, we do thank you for your word. And uh, we do come very, very hungry. Uh, Lord, uh, our and sin has made us hungry. Uh, our world has made us hungry. Uh, the evil one has made us hungry. Um, and now we are here, so would you uh, feed us? Our mouths are open. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, i got to let you know what's going on in my house these days. Uh, we live just a few blocks uh, that way in a very old home. We have four chimneys, uh, and um, we've been talking about either knocking them over or capping them off. Uh, the estimates have been quite high, and the biggest reason we're doing this is not for aesthetics. The biggest reason we're looking at doing something about our chimneys is because uh, we had an intruder, uh, intruder of uh, the flying kind, uh, a small kind. The scary kind that come out at night, bats. Three times this has happened to us. Uh, the third time was about 10 days ago. We're having breakfast. The girls are getting ready to go to school. And um, Eden, Eden I, we didn't see it, but Eden said, I just saw a bat. And we thought, oh my gosh, it's Friday. Um, I've got stuff planned. Jenna's got stuff planned. The kids go off to school. And we canned all the stuff that we had planned. And we went looking for this bat. Now it's the morning. You know, they're going to go to sleep. And we start uh, Googling this like crazy. How do you find a bat during the day uh, in your house? The other times we didn't have bats, they'd come out when the sun went down, and they were really easy to spot. But we wanted to spot this one early. We didn't want to wait for the nighttime to come. Uh, and so a lot of these articles said, you've got to look at eye level or higher. You've got to look on the backs of furniture. You've got to look at your hanging clothes. You've got to look at between the blinds and the windows. And uh, so we start poking around everywhere. We, we, we take all of our clothes, we put them on our back porch, and we look all day long from about 9 in the morning, and we finally gave up at about 5. From 9 to 5, we looked for this bat in our home, never found it. We think somehow along the way, we had the back door open, we think either it flew out or maybe Eden was just seeing things. She is 10, she is trustworthy. We've had bats before, we have reason to believe her, but we never found that bat. <laughs> 
I hope those bats never come. I would never wish it in a million years on you that you would have bats in your house. But have you ever been looking for something? Trying to find out the reason for something? Well, for, for us, we're trying to find a bat, but maybe you've been trying to uh, find out what's, what's going to be the thing that helps my baby sleep. Uh, what is, why is my car making this noise every time I get to the stoplight? Uh, maybe you're trying to find out if you have an interesting family heritage and you're kind of into this genealogy kind of thing. I don't know. But what about God? How do you know, how can you spot God? How do you know when God's on the move? How do you know when God's in your house? Well, the book of Acts gives us a lot of examples. I mean, really, uh, up to this point, we've got chapters 8, 9, and 10, and we've got an eclectic uh, group of stories of individual conversions. You guys, have, most of you have been here along the ride. You can hop back in here. They are some fascinating accounts. Uh, you have a, a man who's been sexually, an African who's been sexually altered, uh, come to know Jesus. Uh, you've got a magician who comes to know Jesus. You have a very angry religious dude, Saul, who comes to know Jesus. And finally, you've got a Roman centurion who comes to know Jesus in Acts chapter 10. It's really interesting. You can kind of get a pulse of like, what does it mean for me as an individual to find Jesus? Read those stories. But then the writer of Acts does something really interesting. He zooms out and says, how does a community know that God's on the move? How do you know if, if God's on the move in your city? And that's our text today. So let's read it together. Acts chapter 11. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And at Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone, according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. All right, so we're going to pull out three things of what happens when God is on the move. The first thing, God gathers all kinds of people. It's verses 19 to 21. God gathers all kinds of people. That's how you know God's on the move. The second thing, God uses leaders. Verses 22 through 26. And lastly, that God causes his people to be generous. Verses 27 and 30. All right? So let's tackle this first one. Uh, that God gathers all kinds of people. Verses 19 through 21. You see, oh, this whole thing is happening in Antioch. The gospel's not gotten to Antioch yet. And Antioch is a huge city uh, for the first century. It's the, in fact, it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. The biggest is Rome. The second biggest is Alexandria, Northern Africa. 
And then there's Antioch. Antioch is in modern day Turkey. It's 500 miles pretty much due north of Jerusalem. And so it sits geographically between three major places. To the, to the west, you've got Greco-Roman Europe. To the south, you've got the Middle East. And to the east, you've got the Orients. You've got Asia. And then it sits right there on the coast. I mean, not right on the coast, but about 10 miles from the coast is Antioch. And there from the coast, there's access from all of the Mediterranean to get there. And so what happens is it becomes this melting pot of cultures here in Antioch. And it's made really obvious in verses 19 and 20. You've got Jews who have been converted to Christianity in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And then they go to Antioch because they were fleeing uh, the per their persecution that happened after Stephen. Now, you remember, if you've been with us, chapter 7, Stephen is stoned, and it causes a great dispersion. So Christians begin to go everywhere uh, across the Greco-Roman world to flee this persecution. They would have never chosen to leave Jerusalem on their own. But God puts them in Antioch. And when they get there, they find people that they can relate to. They find other Jews who are there in Antioch. They know the way they think. They know their worldview. They know their culture. They know how they're going to be able to connect with them. So these Christian Jews go to these unbelieving Jews in Antioch and evangelize them. That's one group of people. Then you've got people, according to verse, uh, verse there in verse 20, you see those two places, Cyprus and Cyrene. You've got people from Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene. Well, Cyprus is this pretty big, sizable island about 100 miles off the coast from Antioch. And then Cyrene is a town on the north coast of Africa. And you've got these people from Cyprus, these people from Cyrene, from northern Africa, who now, they're Christians, that they've made their way to Antioch too. And they're not evangelizing Jews. They're evangelizing, you see there in verse 20, Hellenists. Well, Hellenists are Greek-speaking Gentiles. So you've got the Hellenists. Uh, so you see what's happened. You've got this mishmash of people. You've got Jerusalem Jews ministering to Antiochian Jews. And you've got Cypriot and African believers ministering to Antiochian Gentiles. And there you have the church of Antioch. It's a beautiful mosaic of people. The room had all different kinds of colors. You had to think that their potlucks were really interesting places to go and eat. And you've got to presume that everyone, because they live in Antioch, they all speak Greek, but Greek isn't their first language. That a lot of them are speaking very different languages in their homes than they would at church. It kind of sounds to me like Revelation 7. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. We begin to get a glimpse of what the restoration of all things, when all pain and all sins taken care of. And one of the scenes that we see is in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, you have people from all tribes, all tongues, and all languages extolling the greatness of Jesus. And I think that's what a worship service looked like if you were in Antioch, because you had so many different kinds of people represented right there in the church. It sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? But how many of our churches really look like this? Well, you might say, well, Marsh, we're in Kentucky. Kentucky's 86% white. You've been drinking from these cultural wells of inclusivity and diversity for way too long, Marsh. I understand that, and you're right. Kentucky's a very, very white place. But our city is not. I came across the other day on the public school website and you know the percentage of whites in public schools in Fayette County? It's 49.8. 
know what that says? There's more non-whites in our public schools than there are whites. But our world is a very, very, very divided place. And few things would give testament to the power of the Holy Spirit like a church that's united around something other than class, race, and politics. If a church was united around Jesus, it's got the opportunity to, be, to reflect this kind of diversity. So we see that God's gathered all kinds of people right here in Antioch, but how did God do it? How did God gather all these people? What kind of strategy did they have? Well, if you look there in verses 19, 19 through 21, what you'll notice are no names. These are just normal Sarahs and Bens and Jamals and Marias living there in Antioch or Christians. This revival in Antioch didn't happen under the watch of Peter or Paul. These were just ordinary people whose names have now been forgotten. But look what they did. They didn't do anything spectacular. Verse 19 says that they spoke the word, and verse 20 says they preached the Lord Jesus. Sounds pretty simple. And I know the task of being a multicultural church is going to require nuance. It's going to be complex. It's going to be complicated. There's going to be a lot to learn, and I hope all of us take on a position of humility and are willing to be learners in the process of reflecting our neighborhood. But if we proclaim this Jesus from his word, he will take care of making us reflect our neighborhood. See, being multicultural is not so much about programs and techniques. It's not first and foremost a practical matter. It's first and foremost a theological matter. And it's something that's accomplished with normal people. Sarah's, Ben's, Jamal's, and Maria's. So that means we're all on the hook for preaching the gospel in our city. It's not just me, not just Justin, not just those who are officers here. Preaching is not something that's done in the pulpit about this time every week. It's something that's done on the corner of Loudoun and Maple. It's done in the school bus. It's done at West 6 over a beer. It's done around your dinner table. That's where this preaching happens. So who's on your radar? What unbelieving people are in your spheres of life? Listen, I know this is tough. But guess what? Acts 11.21 says that the Lord is with you. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Luke, trying to make it real clear, you can't attribute their technique or their charisma or anything else for why this happened. But it was the hand of the Lord that was with them. And if we take up this task, that we will see what happens in the second half of verse 21 happen. A great number believe and turn to the Lord. Don't you want to be a part of that? You're just a normal Ben, Sarah, Jamal, Maria. I am too. But Jesus promises to be with us. And this is what happens when God's on the move. But he's on the move in another way. Look at verse 22 through 26. You see this guy come on the scene named Barnabas. It is, you see verses 19 through 21, it's like the great democratization of the church. It's a really level playing field where all people are covered by the blood of Jesus. All these people have experienced the resurrection. All are filled with the Spirit. All are empowered for the work of the ministry. But there's still a need for leadership. 
in Jerusalem. This is where all the apostles are. All the, the, all the leadership of the church is concentrated in Jerusalem. They hear about this astounding multicultural work, and they send someone up to inspect this work. They send Barnabas. I know that sound, might sound heavy-handed to you. Why not just let the Spirit of God be on the move with Ben's, Maria's, Jamal's, and uh, Sarah's? Why not? Why do you have to send Barnabas? What do a bunch of Jewish guys who have never been to Antioch know about doing ministry in Antioch? What do they know? Well, the truth is nobody knows. Whether you live in Antioch or Jerusalem, how to do multicultural ministry, because this is the first time the history of church has ever happened. Yet there's still a need for godly leadership. And you and I need this kind of godly leadership too. I'm sure at times it felt invasive for the people in Antioch, and it's going to feel invasive for you. It's going to feel intrusive for someone to be up in your life. And yes, there are scores of godly leaders who have either underused their position or overused their position. Godly leadership, they were silent and continue to be silent in race relations in America. They've underused their position. Then you've got places where, they, where, where godly leaders have overused their position. Just see any sexual scandal in the news committed by a pastor. So what type of leader should we be looking for? What kind of leader should we be looking to to play this kind of role in our life? Well, look at Barnabas. Let's just start there in verse 23. He was made glad by the grace of God. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And then, lastly, probably the one I like best, and I wish I had another five minutes, I'd, I'd get, get in on it. He was unwilling to work alone. You see, I went and got Saul, the best talented of all, to come work with him. And I bet those five things, glad to the grace of God, exhorting you to remain faithful to the Lord, being a good man, full of the Holy Spirit of faith, and unwilling to work alone, that kind of humility, I bet... If God gave you this kind of leader, you'd be glad for this kind of leadership in your life. I would too. But sadly, most of us, we just write godly leadership off from the word we go. Because we've got this deep distrust and this deep skepticism that resides in our hearts. But other times we say we want this kind of godly leadership, but our list looks very different than what we see in Barnabas. Sometimes what we're looking for is a certain personality, a certain dress code, a certain preaching style, a certain academic background. Well, friends, let me just be honest with you. Those things are superfluous and have absolutely no value in the kingdom. But the things that we see from Barnabas, they're really hard to determine. They're pretty subjective. And they take a long time to get a pulse on you don't know if someone's full of the Holy Spirit and faith based on just having an interview. You don't know if someone's full of the Holy Spirit and faith just by sitting down and having one lunch. You don't know if somebody's full of the Holy Spirit and faith just by having a collection of five-minute conversations. You've got to see these people in action. You, you've got to see them when they don't necessarily have their leader hat on. So, if you're just passing through tonight, if you're looking to join a church, look for these kinds of things in your leader. 
If you're a part of our church, at some point in the future, you're going to have the opportunity to nominate or vote on people, and you're going to be look. You're going to want to look for these kinds of things. And once you do, give that leader your trust. So, so far, how can you find God in your house? How you know God's on the move? You know when He's gathering all kinds of people to Himself, and you know when He's using. When God's using leaders. The last thing we see in 27 to 30 is we see God causes his people to be generous. The church at Antioch there in verse 27 begin to learn about this great need that's going to happen down in Jerusalem. There's going to be a huge worldwide fan that's going to take place and it's going to affect Jerusalem perhaps the most. And their knee-jerk reaction wasn't to, hey, can, can we investigate a little more? Uh, we want to make sure it really is a need. No, they just trusted there really was a need and they did something about it. That was their knee-jerk reaction, was to be generous. And I think if I, I think if we took a lot of time, verse 27 through 30, we'd see lots of things, but I, there here are just a few. First, I think what we see is that God cares as much about our maturation as a church as he does about our numerical increase. So we've seen lots of people are joining the church, lots of people are being converted through the ministry of the church at Antioch. But God's not content with just having conversions. He wants these people to mature. And one of the ways that we know we're maturing is by our generosity. If God's got your heart, he's going to have your money. If he doesn't have your money, then he probably doesn't have your heart. The second thing we see is the solidarity. The solidarity of this kind of act. You've got this gift coming from a Jewish Gentile church in Antioch to a far more established Jewish church in Jerusalem. And so it's really, it's a very important expression of, of solidarity in Christ between these two churches that goes across social and ethnic lines. These Christians, their identity is first and foremost as a Christian and only secondarily is it their race, their ethnicity, or their class. I think the third thing that you'll see from, the, from that, those four little verses is that their giving was free. Free. There's no method. There's no method of giving here or anywhere else in the New Testament that can be, that can be commended to you. Giving in the New Testament is characterized by two things. It's ability on one hand and need on the other. You see the ability part. You see the ability part in verse 29. It says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. Now this church in Antioch, it's a quite wealthy place because of it being an economic center for the Roman Empire. And so when they gave their ability, they're doing that as opposed to a fixed percentage. So presumably those who have a higher income are able to give a higher proportion of what they have. And those who have less gave a lesser proportion because they're giving according to their ability. But what's the way we usually view our money? We usually view our money as uh, we're going to spend, whatever we don't spend, we'll give. You know, the cash that's in our wallet, when the, when the, when the, uh, when the janky red bag gets passed, the cash that's in my wallet, that's what I'll throw in. The change that's in my pocket, that's what I'll give to the poor when I'm walking the streets. But what if the first part of the way we thought about our money was our giving and then our spending fit around what we were committed to as givers? Giving according to your ability. That's, 
that's how you should give according to the New Testament. On one hand, the other is according to need. Now, if you remember way, 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 way back in Acts chapter 2, the Jewish Christians are said to have given to each as they had need. So it's not just looking at your own bank account, your own income, your own spending. It's also looking out in the world. You're looking at the real needs. That the real needs in the world are what dictate your giving. So ability and need. So if you come to me and say, Marsh, what should I get? What should I do with your money? Well, first, please don't do that with me. Uh, do that with one of the other elders. Do that someone else you respect. As your pastor, I don't really want to know about your money. I mean, I do. I, want to know, I hope you're generous, but I hope you trust other people in church to do that. I've opened my, all of my finances up with someone in the church. And I said, will you please tell me where I'm at, where I'm missing it? How can I glorify God better with my money? If you're to open this all up, I'm not. There's no formula to say. Well, this percentage to these places equals glorifying God. But if you trust yourself to make all those decisions on your own, you may be missing the boat. Because giving according to your ability might not factor in what's really true. But the church in Antioch, from its earliest of days, you knew God was on the move because they were giving money away to people who were totally different than them. And all this talk, all this talk about ability and need, it reminded me, it reminded me of Jesus this week. I mean, think about Jesus' ability to give. Jesus is infinitely wealthy because he created all things. He's got the copyright on everything you've ever seen. And one time, one time I was with a friend whose parents had a really large tract of land, and I went to go see this land one time, and when we got to the property line, they said, hey, this is where our property line starts. And we drove for several minutes going forward. Now, we got caught up in conversation. I didn't even remember the comment about this is where our property line starts. But several minutes later, they finally said, and this is when it stops. And I just couldn't believe it. I mean, if you came to my house a few blocks away from here, you could barely blink from the time where my property line starts and where my property line ends. I mean, it's about the width of my house is my property line. And I started thinking, okay, let's just say the whole world was Kentucky. I mean, that's the way I think about it anyways. But if the whole world was Kentucky, and you were riding in a car with Jesus, and you went to the easternmost tip of Kentucky, which is Phelps, if you were, if you were wondering, if you were in the easternmost tip of Kentucky, you'd be in Phelps. And if you wanted to go to the westernmost tip of Kentucky, you'd be in Hickman. I didn't know either of these things, so I started looking at it this week. And I thought, wow, I wonder how many miles that is. Well, friends, that's about 500 miles. Imagine you're with Jesus, and you, you were in Phelps, and he says, hey, this is where my property line starts. Well, about 10 hours later, he'd say, and it goes to here. Oh, and by the way, Everything that you've seen, all the trees, all the plants, all the animals, all the people, all the buildings, all of it is mine. Jesus is infinitely wealthy. That's why the angels praise him for all time. Now think about your need. The passage that Cassie read earlier says this about us. Isaiah 61 is talking about the Messiah who's going, to be, who's, go, who's going to come. And Isaiah is trying to tell these people how bad they're going to need the Messiah. And it says the Messiah is going to come to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the captives, 
to the bound, to those who mourn, to those who dwell in ashes, to those who have a faint spirit, and to those whose lives are like a devastated or ruined city. That's who the Messiah is coming to. So you've got ability on one hand. And Jesus, he's infinitely rich. And you've got you on the other hand. You've got me on the other hand, who's infinitely needy, who are described by words I just read from Isaiah 61. So do you see the depth of your need? You might not feel that needy, but this is Jesus' view of you. And for some of us, when we begin to think, oh, we're that needy, I guess Jesus will have nothing to do with me because I have nothing to offer him. But brother and sister, it is your need that stirred up in Jesus the desire to relinquish all of his riches to have you. Second Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by that so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, Jesus, he took on your debt on the cross, not only to cancel your debt and get you to zero, but so that he could dump truck his riches, his righteousness on you so that you have unlimited spiritual assets. See, what Isaiah 61 says is that you're not just poor, not, not that you, it's not just that you aren't poor anymore, but that you're rich. It's not just that you aren't a captive anymore, but you're free. It's not just that the ashes on your head were lifted off, but that you've been given a beautiful headdress. It's not just that your faint spirit was taken away, but it's been replaced with a garment of praise. Friends, this is the message that all kinds of people need to hear, and they're going to respond to repentance and faith. This is the message that produces leaders who are good, who are full of the Spirit, and who realize their limitations. And this is the message that will cause you to be generous. This is how you know God's on the move. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your spirit. That the same spirit that rose your son from the dead is the spirit that lives in us. Lord, how else do we, are we to attribute the change in people like Barnabas and Peter than your spirit? So Lord, would you change us in this way? We pray this in your name. Amen.